90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing as well as possible. <laughs> how about you? <laughs> oh, pretty good. Uh, went to a antique construction equipment show recently. That's fun. <laughs> it was. It was like uh, building a road and a dam and some other stuff like that, like you would have in the 50s, 60s with that vintage equipment. That sounds, I don't know, that sounds like not very long ago. <laughs> but that's <Yeah. laughs> antique. I was just thinking like, were they horse-drawn things? No, no. Okay. I'm just old now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's cool, though. That's kind of neat to think about how much um, technology has advanced since then. Yeah, I mean, my, my neighbor who's in construction was saying that uh, some guys were frustrated when they had to run the the old uh, skid steer that didn't have Bluetooth for them to connect their phone to. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've been in a skid steer where it's got Bluetooth. That's pretty amazing. I don't know if I've been in one that has doors still. <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, well, that's fun. That is yeah. exciting. We have done yes, nothing. Yes, that's what we've been up to. Yeah, we've done nothing exciting because it's so hot. <laughs> it, it is pretty warm still we, yeah. we we flew up there because this was a ways away um it was a toasty ride with no ac Ooh, oh i didn't think about that i mean you said you've got windows right you've got vents and a little storm window mm -hmm. so you get outside air which is cool at altitude but it's not cold no. yeah and you've got a lot of window area for sun to come in <laughs> <laughs> yeah that death ridge is unforgiving even above a thousand feet i'm guessing <laughs> yeah and you know we've had uh hurricane ida make landfall mm -hmm. recently so we've had a lot of interesting meteorology yes we have there was a part that i didn't even a student brought it up and said he was very disappointed in me that I did not mention this in class, um, that it made the Mississippi River run backwards for a little while. So that Fascinating. Was, that I didn't was, hear that. I know. I didn't either. And he's like, really? You call yourself a meteorologist? And I said, I mean, not really, but... <laughs> I mean, that's not meteorology. That's surface processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Take that, Ian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, we're in a climate class. We should have talked about this. So we're not to the hurricane part yet. We'll get there. Did you say the river normally flows the other way and that's climate? Exactly. That's right. This is a weather <laughs> event. Oh, I'm going to bring that up um, <laughs> and say, this is what I should have said. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's cool. And then um, one of my best friends lives in Hoboken, and she's been sending me pictures of the flooding outside her apartment, which is also crazy. So yeah, this has been very interesting. Did you got you guys didn't get any rain from that though? Did you? Not a drop, and yeah. we need it. Yeah, yes, us too. We were just discussing that tonight, and it said we're in dangerous flash drought territory. So we shall see. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be. An interesting end to the summer and intro into fall. It does not feel at all like early September oh, yet. You know, and pumpkin spice lattes came out early this year, and I wish Starbucks wouldn't do that. 
Like, it just... Iced pumpkin spice lattes aren't the same as hot pumpkin spice lattes, so... Yes. We are about to start brewing our pumpkin spice beer. Yeah, so but in that's six not gonna, weeks that'll be there ready. There you go. That is an appropriate time for that to be ready. Yes. <laughs> and I can't wait. And hot on the heels of it is gonna be our winter warmer trying a new oh, new style. That's fun. That's fun. Yeah, I need to uh pumpkin spice beer. That sounds delicious right now. It's All still... you gotta do it's yeah, you know, it's we're not that far. That's true. It's still seltzer weather though. <laughs> Right. Uh, and you know, you could actually, uh, on, on your way over, this is a, a significant detour, but you could swing down into uh, Southern Arkansas and check out Magnet Cove and do some research for the, the part two, un- undoubtedly the part two of this podcast. Undoubtedly. What a smooth transition. <laughs> so I thought that we should talk about the history of magnetism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you do paleomagnetism. We've talked about magnetometers. Yes, yeah. We've even talked about some paleomag, but just like magnetism in general, because obviously that's always the cool thing you do in science class growing up is stick a nail onto a rock. But like, what is that? When did compasses come around? Who are the people working on this? So yeah, I thought we could talk about that a little bit. And what are some of the modern versions of these instruments? Yes, correct. That's probably the part two, I'm guessing. <laughs> uh, potentially. So, I mean, Magnet Cove itself is a fascinating place, and we should talk about it on yes on a dedicated show, probably. Absolutely. That is its own thing. You are correct. <laughs> uh, but magnetism, I mean, that's something that you're going to notice, mm-hmm. even if you have no science background. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not surprising that magnetism's history of us trying to figure it out started quite a while back. Yeah, exactly. Um, So obviously a lot of the, it seems like everyone wrote a treatise on magnetism. That's just what you do when you've already done all your schooling. You just write treatises on different (laughs) scientific topics. And so there's been written accounts of these magnetic rocks for a very long time. And so one of the earliest ones, not, you know, the earliest ones, and obviously people for a long time have noticed magnetic rocks, but was um, 600 BC. And of course it was the Greeks. It was Thales of Miletus was a Greek philosopher. And he noted iron's attraction to this rock. And this rock is a lodestone. That's L-O-D-E stone. Um, And he attributed this, I love this too, that lodestones had souls. So all other rocks didn't have souls, only these magnetic ones. (laughs) (laughs) And that made me super excited. And so when you read about any of these old magnetic rocks, they always say lodestone, but like lodestone isn't a mineral. That's not a thing we learned. So do you know the difference or like what lodestone, obviously lodestone is magnetite, but why? I don't. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting, right? <laughs> so not all... So magnetic minerals, right? The most abundant one probably at the surface, magnetite or hematite. But not all magnetite or hematite is strongly magnetic, where iron filings or like a nail or something would stick to it. So you can have two pieces of magnetite. One can have a nail stick to it and one doesn't. So the one that does is what we call lodestone. 
And I, I thought that was very interesting to think that, you know, even though it's still magnetite, it's all Fe304. There's no difference in any structure of it at all. But what is different is basically how you magnetize that magnetic rock in the first place. Okay, so does it have a coherent magnetic field or not? Right, exactly. Um, so you have to go back, those of you that had to, had to endure physics, and think about, and I know we've talked about it on here a lot, but, you know, magnetism doesn't exist by itself, right? Magnetism and electricity go literally hand in hand, <laughs> right? Hence the field of electromagnetism. Correct. <laughs> all, all one word. <laughs> And that field, was that a field joke? That was good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So lodestones are very magnetic magnetite. That's essentially what they are. Um, (laughs) But all magnetite is magnetic, just on different amounts, essentially. So if you have a piece of magnetite, an iron-bearing rock, and it sits around an Earth's magnetic field, over a long enough time period, that magnetite will align to Earth's magnetic field. But Earth's magnetic field is pretty weak, right? At least at the surface. Yeah, 70 nanoteslas, something like that. Right, so at the surface. Or, or 70,000, sorry. 70, yes, there you go. <laughs> um, so at 70 the sur- kilo nanoteslas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, get your calculators out, everybody. Um, <laughs> 70 kilo nanoteslas, I love it. Um, so that's pretty, that's not strong enough for, you know, a nail to be stuck to the surface of the earth, right? So what can we do, basically, to charge these rocks in nature? All right, so you've got to do something with spin of electrons. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to, you know, you can rub a nail against a magnet to align its... Because really what you're trying to do is align the magnetic moments of those electrons, which normally are random. Right. Yes, exactly. So you need everything to point in the same direction, essentially. And you need it to be as magnetized as possible. I know this sounds weird. But when we talk about magnetization, we talk about something about like saturation magnetization. Or we talk about susceptibility, which is how much can a rock be magnetized? And a rock can exist at any sort of level of magnetization. So if you magnetize it a little bit, like as in Earth's field, it has a little bit of magnetization. But if you magnetize it a lot, it has a lot of magnetization and you can, you know, stick nails to it or whatever. So to naturally magnetize something like a piece of magnetite at Earth's surface, we're going to need a lot of electricity. Like lightning? Like 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. (laughs) Great Scott. (laughs) So I think this is so cool because it wasn't until the 90s, actually the late 90s. I'm sure other people have talked about this, okay? But there's a scientist from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, um, Peter Wasilewski. And then this guy that's... Definitely a paleomagnetist, Gunter Kletschetska. I'm sorry, Gunter, I'm very bad at that. Um, and so what they noticed was um, that they, they were looking actually in New Mexico, which is the West is a great place to go look at lightning 
behavior in rocks because there's not a lot of vegetation to get in the way of the rocks. And he said that this magnetite, that's this lodestone, right, um, would become basically magnetized, saturated, because it was being struck by lightning. And so that electrical discharge that accompanies the lightning creates a very strong magnetic field. And that magnetic field from the lightning aligns all those electrons you were just talking about in the same direction. And it's enough to strongly magnetize that magnetite, making it lodestone now. And if you remember, many, many, many shows ago, we had a fun paper. I believe it's from listener Michael on seeing lightning strikes in magnetic survey data, the remnants of those. Wow, that was... With a helicopter data. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm going to say that was under show 100. Wow. Wow. Excellent recall. Um, this is actually what I did my meteorology project, my senior project on, was I looked at... So we all have to do, you know, capstone projects. And in geology, your capstone is field camp. Um, but in meteorology, what I did was I took fulgurites... And that's just lightning struck sand. And so I took these fulgurites and I put them in the magnetometer and measured them. And then I back calculated out the voltage of the lightning that magnetized the fulgurites. All right. Yeah. Did it work? It did. It did. I had one that was very odd. So I don't know what happened with one of them, but it sure did. It was super cool. I don't nice. remember. I don't remember what those numbers are, but <laughs> the hardest part was obviously orienting those little fulgurites in the same <laughs> orientation each time. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mounting mm -hmm. things in the magnetometer is nine tenths. Of it the is yeah, nine point five tenths. Um, yeah. So there's a paleomagnetist in France, Pierre Rochette, who had done this with. Um, concrete at the base of large transmission lines because those get struck all the time and it imparted a magnetization into the concrete and so I just used the same the same sort of um workflow that he did and then worked out the the voltage which was cool but the point being that's how you can create magnetite that's saturated in a magnetization and then therefore creates these lodestones which have throughout history been you know features that were super unique and led to inventing the compass actually all right Mm-hmm. yeah and so, so you find this magnetic rock what can you do with it right correct <laughs> yeah and this is very interesting i'm i'm assuming people I, I try to think about like how you would figure out this. Um, I found this 2015 paper in ResearchGate and it's by W.S. Downey and it's about looking at this potential compass um, from the Bronze Age, which was 3,800 years ago. Quite a while back for a compass. Uh, yeah, correct. Because I think everybody says, well, the Chinese created the first compasses, you know, that we know about or whatever. Um, the Vikings used comp compasses. Any seafaring group of people essentially used compasses. But I, I don't know much about this paper. It's 
it was very interesting. It's this Minoan Kernos Bronze Age compass that was used to predict a total solar eclipse. So I didn't read it all, but it was a very interesting... Um, it, they found this vessel that had a hole in it and he recreated this little wooden vessel and you could put pieces of lodestone in it and you could also put iron filings around it and you could see, you know, the magnetic field lines and stuff and you could align this vessel and it was like allowed to spin somehow. And so therefore you could figure out orientations with it. That's what I gathered. Interesting. So it may have been around for longer than we think, but we do know that, like you said, basically any seafaring, so Chinese, Europeans, Vikings, mm-hmm. lots of people used compasses. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so <laughs> the first treatise on <laughs> magnetization that is very, I don't know, complete, I guess, um, is from this French scholar, and it's from the 1200s. And it's Pierre Pellerin de Maricourt, and he wrote about and drew pictures of these magnetic compass needles um, in this letter on the magnet, the Epistola de Magnete. And he didn't know why these aligned and showed direction, but the picture is really cool. It's, it's a quadrant compass. I mean... Straight up, they got zero to 90 in every quadrant, which my students were like, oh, we hate quadrant compasses. <laughs> uh, yep, I was in, you know, of course. Of course, it's a quadrant compass. Exactly. I love quadrants. They you know, I mean, the first version of everything is not as good as later improvements. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, we knew that magnets existed. We didn't know why they were like this. Um but they pointed the direction to something. And the somethings that people thought they pointed the direction to for thousands of years is pretty funny. <laughs> so did they point toward, you know, your one true love or what? <laughs> the thing you want most in life. Um, <laughs> so Pierre Pellerin de Maricourt in the 1200s says, look, these are compasses. Here's some diagrams. They point at stuff. We can find our way with them. And then enter several hundred years later, uh, William Gilbert. And so this is a big name in magnetism. There's an AGU award, the Gilbert Award, and that's usually presented to a paleomagnetist or a rock magnetist. But this old white English dude, um, he's the father of electricity and magnetism. He actually coined the word electricity, which I didn't know. Yeah, and in the uh, the photo that you you found of him or the the drawing, it looks like he uh, had his finger in a socket. Uh, it, it is quite some traditional getup that he's wearing. Very much so. <laughs> uh, but by understand, or well, I don't know about understanding, but by investigating electricity, it started hinting at what's going on with the compass. Right. Exactly. So he, Gilbert was actually a physician for Queen Elizabeth I, but he studied physics, and she gave him all this money to do all his physics um, work, and presciently, during this pandemic, we can talk about this. So when she died, she left him, like, tons of money. It would have been any, oh, 
any scientist's dream to have this kind of patron, right? But he died like two months later because that was all during the plague. So that sucks. <laughs> um, but in his lifetime, he did do a lot of things. So I said people didn't know where compasses pointed to. My favorite, because this is real cool, is that a lot of sailors thought that mountains in the Arctic were magnetic. And so that's why it pointed towards, like, the poles of the Earth. Okay. That's not a terrible guess. I know. It's not at all. Um, Christopher Columbus thought that the compass pointed to the North Star. I mean... Not wrong. It sort of does. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so that makes sense. This one was uh, at least a 45-minute wiki hole. <laughs> a lot of sailors thought garlic interfered with compasses. <laughs> What? I know. <laughs> okay, so I found so many articles on this. And in fact, I've got one pulled up right now. And it's from the Irish Times. It's from 1999. Garlic and its effect on the magnetic compass. <laughs> All right. Okay, so it says that like firm belief throughout all the sailing cultures that both garlic and onions affected the accuracy of magnetic compasses and therefore you did not put garlic or onions on ships interesting <laughs> isn't that interesting and so like my students and i were trying to think of like how i mean because over time obviously like true north and magnetic north aren't the same and magnetic north is always changing. So it's like, did, did someone just have like a huge load of garlic at a time when like the magnetic field was shifting a bunch and therefore saw it on this months long journey or something like that? I don't think that over that short of a time span, though, it would make any difference. It had to be like defective instruments or... Yeah. Because yeah, magnetic field doesn't change rapidly enough for that to really be a thing um it could over time in certain time periods um i actually found a thing too that talked about columbus columbus saw like changes in declination as you move because if you go far enough away you know your declination is going to change sometimes by quite a bit and okay that's true yeah so it's like if you travel far enough you would see changes whether the whether the magnetic pole is varying or not you would see those changes um, and he, he was written about how, like, he was worried the crew would see that and then freak out and turn around and take it as, like, a bad omen or something. So I don't know. Interesting. I mean, yes. that's clearly what you would go to is, it must be the garlic or the onions. <laughs> Numerous things about this garlic onion thing. And it's so much so we were looking like, do garlics take up some weird mineral that causes them to maybe be magnetic <laughs> yeah selenium was the only thing we could think of yeah mm -hmm. yeah so there's a fact for you <laughs> i mean garlic's not bad i don't like onions so i'm not going to test that one but... oh no i love them both i could never have been a sailor and i'm terrified of the open ocean because everyone should be <laughs> Uh, that's another episode. Uh, sure is. Um, <laughs> okay, so William Gilbert, Gilbert wanted to clarify this magic of the compass and figure out what is it actually pointing to. So there's all these things, right or not right, about 
why the compass points a certain direction. Um, and he had done a lot of work um, working with iron-related things. And he saw – this is really cool to me um, – when blacksmiths would do heat working on their tools and they would heat up these iron anythings, the iron would become demagnetized. And he noted that. And then as it cools back down, it becomes magnetized because it's sitting in Earth's field, right? So that's he actually saw the iron minerals going through their Curie temperature and acquiring or or demagnetizing as they heated up and cooled down. Yeah. All right. So got an idea anyway of how these rocks might acquire magnetization. Not totally right, but not totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not totally right. Not totally wrong, right? Because he missed the lightning part of lodestone, but he did say that lodestone was charged by Earth's field. Um, he started, he did a lot of like iron filing stuff and understood the circular pattern of magnetic field lines and said, well, because all this lodestone is everywhere we go and because compasses work, therefore the magnetization that is causing this alignment must be from earth itself. And so, yeah, that was, that was a big deal. And he wrote his own treatise on electricity and magnetism in completely in Latin, de magnet, um, where he outlined a lot of the first, you know, electricity and magnetization, electromagnetic theory, I guess. All right. Yeah. 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 So let's fast forward a couple more hundred years to Carl Frederick Gauss. Ah, uh, yes. Now we're getting to modern magnetism. Yes, exactly. So his treatise in 1839 was on the mathematical modeling of the Earth's magnetic field. And this blows my mind. Now, I have a minor in math. I don't use it like you do. I've forgotten so much. But this is unbelievable. And to just talk about it on a, on a you know, easily digestible scale. So Gilbert knew that there are magnetic field lines. He surmised that there was iron in the earth and that because we were spinning, he did a lot of work also on like the other rocky planets actually, um, because we were spinning, that spin and this whole electromagnetic correlation caused earth to have a magnetic field. Okay, great. But that was it. So Gauss comes along. And he creates this model of Earth's magnetic field. Okay. He's this, we don't have magnetometers at this time. All right. But we did know that from compasses, you could tell declination and inclination of Earth's field where you were. Okay. So you've got that data. But he took the Laplace equation, which if you want to talk about the Laplace equation... (laughs) 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 that's fine um but in general it's a second order pde partial differential equation and it maps a scalar function to another scalar function so earth's magnetic field is a vector right but he takes a scalar function because what you what do you have at every point you have declination and inclination and he maps it in spherical coordinates to earth he used Legendre, polynomials, all this fun stuff from all these mathematicians at the time. 
um, because he didn't have the magnetic potential, but he could get those components, the deck and ink. And he solved the Laplace equation in spherical coordinates by mapping that deck and ink onto the earth and came up with an incredibly accurate map of earth's magnetic field. No Google, no textbooks, <laughs> just mathematical talent and paying attention. Uh, yeah. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable to me. Like, this is a model I won't say that dumb box quote about. <laughs> because so, so he wrote his treatise in 1839, but he first did a lot of this work in 1835 and these maps of his deck and ink and and the intensity of the magnetic field you can go back and figure that out for 1835 and it's nearly dead on nice yeah dude didn't have computers <laughs> did this by hand mapped earth's magnetic field isn't this incredible it is. And, you know, I mean, there are lots of, lots of ways that electricity and magnetism are related that Gauss worked on and figured out. Yes, yeah. Um, of course, there's a lot of laser, later work in the field, you know, Maxwell, and we get into full electrodynamics. But uh, this is really incredible for the time. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, Gauss is a unit of measurement, too, right? Like, it's 10 to the minus 4 Teslas. So he got this unit of magnetic flux density named after him. But my gosh, that's just, that was not a story I knew at all. And that's unbelievable. Yeah. So again, these, these scientists of yesteryear really were very talented. They had put a lot of thought into what, what they did. And uh, they mm -hmm. figured out a lot with very little. With very little, exactly. Um, so this is where I... I stopped my investigation because we are getting into the more modern part. And so, you know, next week we want to talk about the first magnetometers and all that jazz. We certainly can or later on um, either way. But that's sort of the the ancient history of magnets that I thought was was really cool. I have no doubts that there are a lot of very cool sort of indigenous stories that go along with lodestone. So I'm definitely going to try to find some of those as well. Right. And, you know, there's a lot more to talk about, too. Like you mentioned declination and inclination. Uh, and the magnetic field is is pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, it is. So if you think about those field lines, right, um, and what they look like in the Earth. So now, at this point in time, the Earth's magnetic field goes down into the North Pole, North Magnetic Pole, and out the southern magnetic pole and at any point along the earth's surface you have both the horizontal component which is the declination of the earth's magnetic field and the vertical component which is the inclination well so they're not the same right the no the declination is the difference of the horizontal component from true north and the inclination is the angle that the vertical component makes with horizontal. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, they're the two angles that describe the direction of the yes. vector in three space. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. 
So you get those two values. Um, so if you want to think about like what those values are or where. So the Earth's magnetic field is vertical at the poles. Okay. And so in the Northern Hemisphere, we call that down. And we actually call it positive. Or we call it normal. <laughs> because we're Northern Hemisphere centric. <laughs> and then when it you know comes out the other side, it's going... That's different direction in the southern hemisphere it's the opposite of that and so we but talk it's purely convention purely convention because this flips right right <laughs> so it flips uh, sometimes it reverses and that's a whole nother a whole nother thing to talk about that it does that um but when we talk about inclinations that vertical component it's 90 degrees at the poles and it's zero at the equator Right. And again, magnetic poles and magnetic equator. Close to geographic, but not Very exact. close. Well, it's averaged over time. It's the same. Fair. Okay. Yes. <laughs> That's how paleomagnetists talk about it. <laughs> not useful for somebody doing a magnetic survey. Not but... useful for that at all. But paleomagnetism. Or navigating. Or... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, correct. Um, we deal with a thing called the geocentric axial dipole hypothesis, which means that over time you can average out magnetic, the magnetic field and it moving around, and it basically equals the rotational axis. Fair it's enough. It's a huge assumption and like I said, that's time scales of thousands of years. But not the largest years, in the field. But not the largest, and that's why we call it paleo magic. But <laughs> if you want an idea of what those numbers are, right? So, yeah, North Pole, South Pole, 90-degree inclination, zero at the equator. And we use these declination and inclinations that get recorded when rocks are created to figure out. I mean, this is how we figured out that plate tectonics worked, essentially, that the, that the actual... Um, lithospheric plates moved around on the surface of the earth because we record the magnetization in them when they get formed. And that wasn't always where the continents were today. And you can make big maps of how earth's magnetic field has changed over time. Right. Yep. And there are even, so, I mean, with a three component magnetometer, you can of course measure yes. all three components of the magnetic field and calculate these. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there were some early mechanical instruments that were basically compasses that had a dip needle. Right. Yep. Um, though the dip component, depending on where you are, can be very small. Yes. Uh, but if you've got a Brunton at the poles, you might have to weight the needle. Right. Yeah, it's you have to pointing straight down. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have to have a special a special compass to use at high latitudes, actually. Uh, well, or you pop the glass off your button and wrap a little bit of wire around. Or you, well, I mean, that's the, that's a special compass, exactly. Um, and some of these old yeah. compasses, if you want to look them up, they are sort of more 3D. I don't know if you saw this picture I sent you of this, like, Chinese compass, where it's, it's allowed to be more gyroscopic, which I also thought right. was interesting. So, obviously, they knew that they needed something to move in 3D to fully capture what was happening. I thought that was very interesting well i mean at some point you know why would you assume it's just 2d yeah mm-hmm. i mean um, i guess if you just go follow one line of latitude right <laughs> but yeah you're probably not doing that so you're right and so this is something that we actually uh well i made a 
HU abstract on this many years ago, and now we sell it as a product on our website. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can buy a modern 3D compass. It's so fancy, too. It's got shiny LEDs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it, it shows you, it, it looks just like a compass. You know, it's got a ring of LEDs that turn to red as they point to north. And then it's got a vertical ring that shows the dip. So you can move this thing around however you want, and it's always going to show you the direction of the magnetic field vector. So awesome. And you can hook it up to your computer and get the X, Y, and Z components. So you can get actual numbers. But more importantly, can I make it be different colors? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, actually, you can. It's uh, All of the code for it is open source, so you can do whatever you want to. Oh, it. look at that. That's amazing. Yeah. The uh, it's all it all runs on an Arduino, with a, a custom board that we built and enclosure that we built to make it look neat like a little three D compass. But uh, yeah, it it's sort of like that Chinese compass except it's electronic now. I love this as a learning tool too, um, because actually I love it because of the lack of numbers. Because I think a lot of people see numbers in science and immediately shut down, even if it's something that's not super hard to understand, but it's just a mental block that you can't get past when you tell yourself you're not good at math. And so I think it's a super cool way to visualize the magnetic field without all the incredible math that goes into it. Well, and what I like about it, too, is you can take a little magnet like a fridge magnet, a strong one. And move it around this thing sitting on the table and watch the lights follow it. Oh, that's cool. And so you'd be like, okay, well, I, I now understand that the magnetic field is just a vector that's pointing towards north. And mm-hmm. I've got this magnet that's north. I can move it around. And, oh, look, this is what the magnetic field would look like if I were orbiting the Earth. Super cool. I should get one of these to play with. Hmm. You should. I'm kind of shocked you don't have one. I'm kind of shocked I don't have one, too. <laughs> all right let me get my ou credit card out <laughs> yeah so i think it's a pretty cool thing we uh you know the first one that i made was just a i said it was a prototype for an agu abstract to go hey look this is a cool thing that you can do with a 3d printer and some basic electronics and a lot of people were interested and somebody said hey can we buy a kit of this because mm-hmm. i don't want to do all this myself mm-hmm. and i said no not yet. And <laughs> so we, we came up with a way to make a kit using some laser cut acrylic. And uh, it's actually pretty easy to assemble. You just need a screwdriver to put it together. Oh, nice. That is nice. Yeah, this is this is a really cool thing. I'm totally going to buy one of these tomorrow. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we've even got, like, labs that go with it that show you, like, uh, the, the charts of saying this is the declination chart and this is the inclination chart for the world, what do you expect your declination and inclination to be? What are they? Mm-hmm. That's cool. Very cool. And you say, well, it doesn't really matter. Okay, you know, we were just talking about magnetic north and geographic north. It doesn't really matter. To, well, until it does. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, you navigate using geographic north, but... What are winds measured in? Oh, that's magnetic north. So if you're going to correct for drift of your ship, now you need to know what your declination is because you have to correct the measured winds. 
to geographic yeah. coordinates. Hmm, this gets complicated quick. <laughs> Correct. Yes, it does. <laughs> yep. That's why we always leave our paleomagnetic compasses at no declination correction, and we just let software correct it. That is the best. Be- <laughs> best I best. I just assumed that was something we did, but no, I don't think so. It's something lots of PMAG people do because, man, as much as I harp on it, you know, you get out in the field, and two hours later, you're like, oh, oops. <laughs> I, I don't, uh, even when taking strike and dips for, like, mapping, I set it to zero. And you just make and the correct it later. Yeah, so that's what. Yep, so that's what we do. So you have to remember, you know, there's a spot in our software where you put in your declination correction, but you have to remember to always correct your strike and dips too. But yeah, it's almost easier just to leave it at zero unless you're only doing work forever in one location. Well, and folks say, well, I don't remember which side to set it on on the Brunton. Uh, or well, no, they say I don't remember which way you add or subtract. But then you have oh. to remember which side to set your Brunton on, mm-hmm. yeah, which exactly. I always mess up anyway. Yeah. And cause... there's the, you know, you got the little cutesy rhyme, east is least, but west is best. So you subtract for east and add for west. That blew my mind. I've never heard that. It was great. Yeah. So east is least, west is best. <laughs> and that's how you do magnetic declination corrections. Oh, man. I'm, oh, the way I teach it is not that easy. And now I'm going to do that. And I guarantee no one's going to miss that on the quiz this next year. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, because, you know, there's not, you know, your corrections minus four. What does that mean when you look at your compass? Like, it's just right. got an east and a west. I, and they're printed backwards? I don't know. No. <laughs> yeah, so very confusing. But Yes, so mm-hmm. just set your Bruntons to zero. Mm-hmm. And let math and be your friend. <laughs> Let math be your friend, and if you're a structural geology professor, please don't send me hate mail. <laughs> oh, man, I can't wait till you get that. That's going to be good. <laughs> we, we will accept letters of adoration, but that's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, will you accept, um, you know, letters of adoration from whales singing to you? Oh, man, that's... Uh... <laughs> That's quite the stretch, but it means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Yay. Um, you know, you got you to gotta do what you got to do. <laughs> Seismic crustal imaging using fin whale songs by Kuna et al. Uh, yeah. Um, I love this picture, figure one, this wonderful fin whale that's like very shaded and lovely i didn't know what a fin whale looked like but this someone spent some time in illustrator exactly this illustrator picture of fin whale is just beautiful (laughs) it's real good um this was super cool i thought um this was sent in to me by jerry and he said you should use this and he said also that his company is trying to employ whales to do their work for them now (laughs) Nice. So this is taking whale songs mm-hmm. uh, and using them as a seismic source because energy is energy. This is so neat <laughs> because you can't always, yeah, like this is a source of energy that's always going on. And so all your seismometers on the bottom are recording this stuff anyway. So why not 
use it. And I thought this was really cool how they did like NMO analysis with these whales swimming around. And most of the time, seismologists that work with OBS data would look at this and go, oh man, look at all this noise. We, we got to filter all this out. Mm-hmm. Luckily, it's high frequency-ish, you know, 50 to down to maybe 10 hertz. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, we're not interested in really high frequency stuff with teleseisms anyway. So no big deal. Uh, and we'd probably just ignore it. But instead, these folks took the energy because that acoustic wave can be very loud it says it can be as loud as a large commercial ship yeah i thought that was very interesting so which a micro pascal at a meter away that doesn't sound like much i mean one micro pascal but that's that's strong yes mm-hmm. yeah and they there's a very specific like wave that they sing too but so it's a near constant you know it's a signal you can see it is a biological vibra size because yeah. it has this nice frequency sweep and it repeats over and over. Uh-huh. Yeah. Super cool. Way cheaper too. <laughs> right. And what I really loved is you can track the whale with a single station. Yeah. This is awesome. Because here you're getting into some techniques that more are reserved for infrasound. Uh, but in the water, you can do them with seismology too. So the whale makes its noise, and some of that energy goes directly to the seismometer, seismometer, and some <laughs> hits the floor of the ocean, bounces, hits the water-air contrast, and bounces, and then goes to the OBS. And by differences in travel time, they're able to figure out how far away these whales are, and they know roughly how deep the whales are when they're singing, just from other biological studies Mm -hmm. so they can start constraining the path of the animal yeah and it said that like the i was really impressed with the error on on this it said that they only sing when they're in a certain depth and the uncertainty of where the whale is in their dive depth while they're singing is 0.2 percent yeah because I would have thought that that would have caused some issues, but it didn't at all because they only sing in this certain way when they're only in like the specific 20 meters of water. So, And also, I love plots like uh, subpanel D in figure one. I don't see them enough in seismological papers. Oh. It's an underappreciated mm-hmm. plot. Mm. We always look at the vertical component because if you're looking at teleseisms, you're mainly looking at vertical energy. They're basically perpendicular to the Earth's surface. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, surface waves, that's not true. But we generally look at line plots. But this is a plot looking down at the seismometer. So X is west-east and Y is north-south. It's a particle motion plot in 2D. And this line that's traced out points towards the source. So they're able to get an azimuth of the whale from that. And now we know the distance, the azimuth, and the depth, roughly, we can make a track through the water. So cool. This was super cool. Mm-hmm. And is... they said that some of the whales came within, you know, hundreds of meters mm-hmm. of the stations and then went many kilometers away and they were able to continually track them on what looked like realistic paths. Yeah. These whale songs and travel paths map is really cool um, too. One of them they tracked for a long way. Um, 
Yeah, many kilometers. Uh, 35 kilometers? Yeah. Uh, this is so cool, and I feel like there are so many potential homework problems that could be solved here. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah. Yeah, so when they looked at this, too, they got a really good and expected map of the sediment and the, you know, basement rock in the ocean floor, too. So it seemed to work pretty well. Yes, they were able to get reflections from a couple kilometers at most. I mean, one kilometer pretty solidly. Below that, got a little iffy. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, from, you know, thousands of meters below the sea floor, they were still able to see some of those reflections in the seismic data. Yeah, that's really cool. So you can see through the seds that are on top and then the basalts that are that are underneath there and see that contrast. Yeah. Instead of shot gathers, they called them song gathers. <laughs> so pretty. <laughs> but still the same acronym, so that's okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just so cool because he's moving and you can do this normal move out on the seismic data. It, it, this is a really a really cool little study. I think it's it's neat and it's probably something people could do with a lot of their data that they have anyway. Well, and I enjoyed their statement uh, towards the end of the paper. But they said that this study demonstrates that animal vocalizations are useful not only for studying the animals themselves, but also for mm-hmm. investigating the environment that they inhabit. Yes. Yeah. Like bat stuff or something, right? That w- I thought that was super cool, too. Yeah, this is a really fun paper, Jerry. Uh, totally appreciate it. It's from February of this year. Um, yeah, you should check it out. Yes. So if you have a fun paper that you would like us to talk about, or you have OBS data from fin whales, and you would (laughs) like to share what you found for the average uh, velocity, both P and S wave, of the sediments, (laughs) basaltic basement, and gabroic lower crust layers... (laughs) Shannon, how can they send that in? <laughs> Sounds like the worst homework problem ever. Uh, John will grade those. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And occasionally we're in the Slack chat room. So find us on the Software Underground in the Don't Panic channel. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to keep us going, you can do so too. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 